a very brief text with which to begin, if I may please. It's First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. And shortly we will mention it uh, in the course of what we wish to present. First Thessalonians 5 and 17 very simply says, Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. I understand that the sense of that is not so much intended to be like a continuous 24-7 experience, because that would be practically impossible. But if we were in a, a gathering such as this, and one of us was unfortunate enough to have a very bad cold, and perhaps their hacking cough uh, punctuated the entire gathering, uh, we might go away and we might say, they were coughing without ceasing, non-stop coughing. Um, it meant that it was such a recurring feature that in our recollection of it, the best way to express that would be coughing without ceasing. And so, praying without ceasing, it's a, an attitude of prayer, it's um, a familiarity to regularly turn to God in prayer about matters. So let's think about our topic. We are asked to speak in this first presentation about the purpose of prayer. And the purpose of prayer raises some vital and obvious questions, I think. I've been asked to address this topic of the purpose of prayer over against the consideration of God's sovereignty. And that does throw up issues whenever we think of prayer, doesn't it? Uh, one question would be, is it possible for us to change God's mind? Does God, the sovereign God, change his mind? And does he do so in response to our praying? If we were to answer that question negatively, then we might say, well, does prayer change other things? Certainly to ask the question, does prayer change things, is different from asking the question, does prayer change God's mind? So that's certainly another topic we have to look into. And then if we're thinking about God as the sovereign God who navigates resolutely towards his purposes, then really it raises the question, is it meaningful to pray at all? Can God be deflected from his sovereign purposes? Isn't prayer, really when you think about it, a pointless exercise? I'm sure we've all encountered such questions. If we've not formulated them ourselves, we've probably met with people who've put those points to us if we believe in a great and sovereign God. So they're, they're worth thinking about on an occasion like this. So, in doing so, I wanted to begin with uh, a quote from John Calvin. And uh, as one of the leaders of Reformed thinking, he has put forward the view that God ordained prayer not so much for himself, but for us. Not so much for his sake, but for our sake. Prayer being for our benefit, principally. And I'm sure we've all meditated on the fact that it's when we come into God's presence in conversation with God that one of the immediate benefits is the effect upon ourselves. It's what happens to us. This is one of the, the great benefits of prayer. It's what happens to us when we are engaging in conversation with the sovereign God. The essence 
of prayer is adoration and confession and thanksgiving. Many of us have used the little acronym ACTS. A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. We'll come to that in a moment. But when we reflect on the essence of prayer in terms of adoration, confession, and thanksgiving, we can readily perceive the immediate impact prayer is to have upon ourselves as we come into God's presence. Those issues do not primarily raise a tension in our minds between prayer and the sovereignty of God. So people are changed through spending time with God. I think of all the change that we're thinking about, does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change things? This is the essential and most important change that we can consider in relation to prayer. It's the change upon ourselves that we experience through praying. This is the most important effect of prayer. So, let's pursue our subject because we said that the S of Acts is perhaps the more troublesome letter as we think about the challenging issues, the tension perhaps between the exercise of prayer and the concept of the sovereignty of God and how it all works together. So this is the more thorny question. What about prayer of the kind that can be described as supplication or intercession to make a request or an entreaty to plead with God for someone or for some issue. It's how that interacts with the sovereignty of God that really throws into focus the issue that we're starting with, prayer and the sovereignty of God. So, we read 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17. And we read it primarily for this reason, because if someone was to retreat from advocating prayer because they were so overwhelmed with the concept of the sovereignty of God as to think, is it a pointless exercise, in fact, to pray? Then the first thing we have to confront ourselves with is God has commanded that we should pray. So just as the sovereignty of God does not in any way hold us back from evangelism, because the Lord has given us the great commission, neither does any consideration that is correct concerning the sovereignty of God in any way inhibit us from praying, or it shouldn't, because the Lord has commanded in his word very explicitly that we are to pray, in fact, to pray without ceasing in the way that we've thought about it. And other references to prayer, um, such as we encounter in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1, where entreaty has to be made for those in high office, or in Philippians 4 and verse 6, when we are to make supplications, and bring any matter that we're anxious about before God in prayer, that does lead us into the specific aspect of prayer, which is to do with supplication and intercession. So that is not something that we can evade in terms of the command in Scripture that we should be praying, irrespective of God's sovereignty. So, as we think about this, we would have to say that the Bible gives us no hint of any conflict 
between the disciplined practice of prayer and the sovereignty of God. No hint of any conflict in the Bible. Prayer, we are taught, is powerful. And, for example, you think of James chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17 that set before us the example of Elijah and tells us that the prayers of a righteous person are effectual in their working. They accomplish much. So God doesn't only tell us that we should be praying, but he gives us the encouragement through example in his word that prayer accomplishes much. Certainly the prayer of a righteous person does. It's worth stating, because we'll come back to this, that when Elijah is cited as that example, we're thinking of him in relation to his praying, particularly when he prayed and the land that had not received rain for three, three and a half years experienced rain again through the prayer of Elijah. But it's worth noting in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, God had said that the land would not receive rain and then there would be rain at the word of the Lord. There would be rain or the lack of it at the word of the Lord. So when Elijah prayed for rain to come, he did so obeying the clear precept of the Lord. He was fulfilling a command that he had received in his praying. And therefore, Elijah knew that he was in harmony with the will of God when as a righteous man, following the command of God, he was effective in his praying. So we'll come back to that. It's important to bear in mind. But God's sovereignty certainly does place some kind of limitation upon our praying. And we want to explore that now. What kind of limitation does God's sovereignty place upon our prayers? Well, I think a lot of potential confusion that we might have about the interface of prayer and God's sovereignty might come down to what we understand the Bible to mean when it speaks about the will of God. The sovereign will of God. And I think it's important for us to recognise, I hope it will be helpful for us to recognise, that the Bible speaks about the will of God in three distinct ways. And I think if we can compartmentalise them in our thinking, three different ways in which the Bible speaks about the will of God, it will help us when we come to practical, devotional issues, such as prayer, as we're thinking about today. The first way in which the Bible speaks about the will of God is what theologians have called the decretive will of God. Now, that's not a common word, but it's made up from the word decrees, obviously enough. So, a king or a, a potentate issues a decree, and God is the supreme king, and he does issue decrees, his eternal decrees. And this is what theologians are talking about when they reference some of the mentions in Scripture of the will of God as being God's sovereign, decretive will. And this is the will 
by which God brings to pass whatever he decrees. Now, these things would include, for example, our individual destiny, the destiny of the church, the body as a whole, and God's purposes long-term for the nation of Israel. These are all set within God's eternal decrees. Now, suppose, and this has actually happened, a group of Christians are talking together about their ineffectiveness, as it appears to them, in evangelism. And so they say, well, why are we not making progress in evangelism? And some say, well, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So someone says, well, well, shouldn't we be praying for the conversion of Satan then? But that's a fool's errand, of course. Why? Because that comes under the decretive will of God. God's eternally decreed Satan's destiny. And the lake of fire has been prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. And there's no redemptive plan of God for Satan or for fallen angels. So it's a fool's errand to pray for Satan's conversion. Just as an obvious example. There are things, areas in which God's sovereignty limits possibilities for prayer. To be consistent with the word of God. So we would not be praying for Satan's conversion. Now let's move on to another area where theologians have talked about the will of God as it appears in Scripture, and they've talked about the preceptive will of God. Preceptive, again, not a common word, but you can see it's built from the more common word precept. We come across that in most translations of the Bible when we're looking at the Psalms. For example, Psalm 119, where we have so many synonyms for the word of God. God's testimonies. God's commandments, God's statutes, God's precepts. So a precept is just a command uh, from the Lord. So God's preceptive will is to do with his law and his commands that he gives to us. Now, we have the power to break those commands but not the moral right to do so. We all fail at some point in our lives to keep the commands of God. So, in a sense, God has given us, if you like, permission to break these commands and that it's something that he tolerates. He hasn't made it so that it's impossible for us to do that, but he has not given us the moral right or moral permission to break those commands, to fail to keep these precepts. So, for example, we might think of the, the case of a, a woman who has been married for many years to a kind husband, but he's unsaved. And she's a Christian lady. And so she talks to her pastor and she says, I want you to join with me in praying that 
I'll know God's will whether I should leave my husband or not. Because I've been witnessing to him for all these years and he's still unsaved. And the pastor might say to her, well, yeah, I, I will pray for you. She says, well, what are you actually going to pray for? He says, I pray that you'll overcome your arrogance. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you saying that? He says, well, either you don't trust God's reliability or else you presume that you are a special case because God has made it clear in the precepts of his word what someone should do in your particular circumstances. And either you don't trust God to stay loyal to his word or else you presume that your circumstances are are distinct. And of course he would be referring to clear statements in scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So, God's precepts are found in his word. And if we fail to keep his precepts, we are being disobedient. We have no moral right not to keep the precepts of God in his word. But sometimes we all fail. There's another will of God that theologians talk about. And it is God's will of disposition. And this is something that describes God's attitude. Tells us about the things that are pleasing to God. So for example, we read in the ninth chapter of Jeremiah that God, the Lord, delights in loving kindness. And in righteousness and in judgment. God delights in righteous judgment. But God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. That's God's disposition. He will do right. He delights in righteous judgment. But he has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And if we bend these things out of shape, then we might end up espousing universalism and that's an obvious fallacy contrary to scripture so this helps us in texts like in 1st Timothy 2 and verse 4 some versions will say God wills that all people should be saved it's this sense of God's will of disposition that that verse is talking about it's not talking about God's decretive will but it's talking about God's will of disposition. If we put that in the wrong category, we would be headed down the road of universalism. So it's important, it's not just a theological nicety, but it's important to keep us on track in understanding our Bibles that we do distinguish between those three wills of God. God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. His desire is for those people to be saved. But that's not his eternal decree for everyone, for all men, to be saved. And so we need to distinguish between these three things. Now, there are some um, caveats, if you like, upon it. We've talked in the first instance about God's decretive will, his sovereign decrees that are irrevocable. 
But God's sovereignty extends beyond his decrees. Because God is sovereign and there is nothing that escapes the influence of his sovereignty, of course. There's nothing at all that can happen in this world that is outside of God's control. So there are things that he passively permits, which are not things that he has actively decreed. The Lord spoke about the Tower of Siloam falling and killing 18 people. And he made it quite clear that wasn't a summary judgment by God. It wasn't because those 18 were more wicked than anybody else. God had permitted that to happen. Same as in March the 11th, 2011, there was a tsunami on the eastern shoreline of Honshu in Japan, and 20,000 people lost their lives. God allows such things to happen in our fallen world, which is not as he originally designed it, through human rebellion. But he doesn't step in to intervene at all times to stop these things. He allows them to happen. And of course, when such things happen, we might pray. We might pray that relief workers will reach out and love their neighbours. And I guess that's bringing us into that second category of the preceptive will of God. Because... It's in the precepts of God that we should love our neighbour and love one another. So we can't pray against the decrees of God, but even within his sovereignty, there are elements that we can pray for. Pray for people fulfilling the precepts of God's word. And so we have thought about these permissions that are there, either within the thought of God's overall sovereignty his passive permissions, outside of his active decrees, or in the preceptive will of God, he gives us the permission, but not the moral right, not to keep his precepts. Permission only in the sense that it's possible for us to refuse to keep them. So now, I want us to think about how our praying relates to these wills of God as they are defined for us, helpfully, I trust, from the scriptures. And I would want to, to just emphasize further to what I've already said, that in terms of the decretive will of God, that is God's eternal decrees, those things which cannot be changed, we've got no business praying about these such things. That would be intruding into God's privacy. We are not to try to change anything to do with God's um, appointments for people's destinies, his eternal decrees. We may express to God in prayer our desire to be used as instruments in reaching his elect. We may long for the return of Christ and the rapture of the church and express our longing fervently for that. We may pray for the ultimate peace of Jerusalem and the times that the scriptures indicate lie ahead. But we can't overthrow the program that God has set in motion for this world in terms of four great empires or the 70 weeks of Daniel. These things are fixed. And yet we can express some prayers 
in relation to our longings relative to these things or being used to serve God's purposes in these points. Similarly, in terms of God's will of disposition, I would suggest to you that it would be impertinent at the very least to try to modify God's attitude. Sometimes reading the Psalms about the psalmist speaking about God's anger smouldering against his people. But the psalmist is not to pray to God to, to not be angry against his people as if God should go on some kind of anger management counselling course and modify his disposition. How impertinent and irreverent and wrong that would be, of course. God's disposition, his antagonism against sin, is perfectly correct. We might pray that God would graciously change the disposition of the hearts of his people in line with his own disposition against sin. But we can't pray, we ought not to attempt to pray that God's disposition against sin, for example, would change. To be more tolerant, to lower the bar, because we're struggling to retain to the height of that bar. So you can see that where I'm trying to position things is that I think the bulk of our effectual praying is really in relation to the preceptive will of God, the precepts, the commands that God has given us in Scripture. And we would be interceding with God because of our, our moral failures, our failure to live up to his word, our apology, our confession. Or like the psalmist, we might pray, remember how the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, Lord, incline my steps according to the way of your commandments or the way of your precepts. So we can pray fervently, and we need to, don't we, for God to give us the, the moral courage to walk in his ways and to obey in these things where it is permissible in the sense of it is possible for us not to follow in the Lord's ways and to disobey him. And so a lot of our praying, I suggest the bulk of our praying, is in this area. And I think the, the headline thing is God is concerned about the moral character of our lives far more than anything else. And the main point in that is God's desire is for each one of us to be conformed to the image of his son. And I can pray in my life and you can pray in yours that we should be conformed ever more accurately to the image of God's Son. And that doesn't matter if I've got a sore leg or not. That's not the big deal. It's about my moral conformity or lack of it to the image of God's Son. That's primary. And that should be reflected in my praying far more than about my ailments and about my frustrations. I should be more focused on what God is focused on wanting me to be conformed to the image of his son. And I am a wretched man, like the Apostle Paul, so far away from that high desire that God has that I should be conformed to the image of his son. I should be consumed with praying along these lines, that in my character morally, in my life, I am more pleasing to God by being more like his son. 
you know, you encounter that when you go through the New Testament scriptures. That's the kind of praying that you encounter so frequently that Paul is praying for those in churches of God about. He speaks to the Galatians and he, he bursts into his longing and prayer for them in Galatians 4 and 19. He says, I'm in travail until Christ is formed in you. That's far more important than the very relevant necessities of their daily life. And it's not inappropriate to bring these things before God in prayer. We'll touch on that in a moment. But here's the headline. Here's what should be setting the agenda and the priority. And then even if you're following the Golden Bells calendar reading, just yesterday you'd have been in the fourth chapter of Colossians. And even amongst all the greetings at the end of that lovely little letter, Paul shines a spotlight for a moment on Epaphras and his earnest wrestlings in prayer for his brothers and sisters in Colossae. And he says, I, I bear him testimony. He's, he's praying earnestly for you that you stand firm and you become mature and you become complete. See, that's the kind of thing that Paul was emphasizing in his prayer life. And that's the agenda for our prayer life we would pick up from Scripture if we're reading closely. I say it as a challenge to myself and to us all. When we think about our, <coughs> our personal prayer times, when we think about our church prayer times, is that the purpose that comes through in our praying? It's perfectly right to pray for Auntie Betty's broken leg and Mary's arthritis and change of job, etc., all these things are things that we can naturally be anxious about. And Philippians 4 would tell us that we're not to be anxious in anything, but we're to turn them into prayer and make requests to God. So whenever we're anxious about anything, however small, we bring it to the great God of heaven. And there's no restraint in doing that. And there should be no criticism for anyone doing that. That's the right thing to do. But I'm just talking about the balance. And we shouldn't be... 100% focused on these things we should be thinking along the lines that we pick up from the Apostle Paul and we see his purpose in prayer expressed in the pages of scripture and their spiritual purposes he opens his letters and as he thinks about the people to whom he's addressing himself he can't help himself he, he talks to the Lord in effect and he, he thanks God for the faith that he sees in these people that's increasing more and more and he praises God that he can see they're abounding in love for one another. The spiritual characteristics in people's lives. The dynamic of their discipleship. He's, he's evaluating not in a critical way but in a loving way. In a helpful and a prayerful way. Where they are in their journey and walk with the Lord. We would serve one another so much better if that was our take on each other. And if those were the things that perhaps were the majority focus in our prayer meetings, along with the other things that are vital and necessary too. Just a comment, I hope you'll bear with it. We're thinking about the purpose of prayer, and therefore I, I feel constrained to speak about what I see in the New Testament Scriptures as the overarching purpose of prayer. What's on God's agenda? He wants you and I to be conformed to the image of His Son. And a lot of our praying, surely, should be about that great goal that God has in our lives. So, 
if we are focusing prayer about this moral terrain in our lives, then I'm suggesting that it's really to do with the preceptive will of God. A lot of the decretive will of God is untouchable for us. That's God's business, not our business. Don't intrude there, other than seeking clarification, perhaps, and issues that are ramifications that come from those purposes and decrees of God. Similarly, God's disposition. Um, God's disposition is the correct disposition, and we should be concerned with our own disposition. So in here, I think, is where we've got tremendous mileage for prayer. And it doesn't produce any intellectual or theological tensions with the sovereignty of God, because this is where it's focused. So, Eve, just on this point, sometimes I think of younger folks amongst us, uh, and at stages when we're, we're looking to find work or to develop a career, and we have to focus at times on practical things in our lives. And yes, you turn it to God in prayer. In all things we are to pray. But suppose a, a young person is praying about whether they, they're going to take up a job in town A or take up a job in town B. I don't think God is, is so concerned about whether we are in town A or in town B for our work. He can use us in either place. But suppose that town A has no church of God anywhere near it, but town B does. Well, then it becomes a more of a moral issue, doesn't it? So much so, something that God is concerned about. So much so that he's actually written in his word, at least implicitly, what our answer should be. What his will is in that matter. But it becomes something of interest to pray about because there's a moral concern. It's touching upon our life and development spiritually towards the goal of being like his son and fulfilling the precepts of God's word, which include breaking bread on a Lord's Day morning. And so, just another example of the kind of focus that I, I believe we can posture uh, biblical praying to be about. So... I want to say that prayer cannot change God's mind. Um, semantically, we could debate this, but I think uh, as my uh, overall position, I would say prayer cannot change God's mind. And I'm thinking primarily about God's eternal decrees. Now, we take the example of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. No human being had a a deeper understanding of God's sovereignty than our Lord Jesus Christ. And nor did anyone pray more effectively or earnestly than our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he requested a different way. And that was denied. And he bowed to the Father's will. It's the humanity of the Lord that the spotlight has been shone upon in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think Matthew particularly in his telling of the Lord's prayer experience in Gethsemane allows us to see a progression because that progression is shown if you look at the main clauses in the Lord's repeated prayer. They're not actually identical. He said the same thing in effect, but the way it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, the prayers change from the main clause being let this cup pass away in the Lord's first recorded prayer to 
the main clause being your will be done in the second instance of that prayer being recorded. There's a progression there I'm suggesting. It's as if the Lord's emphasis in prayer has changed from if it is possible to if it is not possible. There's a bowing to the will of God. The perfect man bowing wholeheartedly to the will of God. It's an affirmed acceptance of the will of God. Our prayer is not about bending God's will into a shape that is more comfortable for me in my life. It's about bowing my soul, spirit and being to the will of God, such as it is, and acknowledging it. Bowing to what's already accounted for in God's eternal counsels and decrees. So, some people would say, oh, well, you're saying that basically you should pray in, if it's your will, Lord. And some evangelicals say, if you pray like this, or if you pray like that, then God is obliged to answer your prayer. They may be advocating some particular style of prayer. If you pray like this, invoke the name, plead the blood or whatever, we'll touch on some of these things perhaps in our second session. If you pray in this way, God's obliged to answer a prayer like that. God's not obliged to answer such a prayer. God is sovereign and he cannot be manipulated by our prayers. Some other evangelicals might say, well, people who believe that you should say, if it be your will, Lord, they're actually expressing unbelief by doing so. That's a cop-out. But it is proper to pray, not my will, but your will, because the Lord did so in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the fullness of faith, in the perfect expression of faith, the perfect man prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. So that's perfectly correct and the right way to pray, acknowledging the sovereignty of God and bowing to his will. There are, of course, times when we should not say, if it be your will. Perhaps if you think back to the example I gave before about the woman debating in her mind about whether or not to divorce her unsaved husband, she would not be entitled to pray, Lord, I'm struggling of this issue of divorce. I don't know whether to leave my husband or not, but I'm, I'm thinking that I should leave him if it be your will. That's not a correct prayer. Because God has stated what his will is about that point. There's no ambiguity. The precept is in God's word. And so there are times when we don't pray if it is your will. Because God's will is already expressed plainly for us in scripture. But in issues that we are struggling with. Around the edges of understanding the application of some of those precepts, then it is right for us to pray, not my will but yours be done, as the final analysis. If prayer cannot change God's mind, 
And certainly in that statement, emphasising God's decretive will, we then want to come and state that God can react in a different way at times based on prayer. Prayer does change things. Or it can. And we think of the examples that we have in Scripture, an example like Nineveh, and Jonah is sent to preach to Nineveh. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Didn't happen, did it? God's sword of judgment was hanging over Nineveh, and yet God finally withholds his judgment because the king and all the people repented in sackcloth and ashes. The judgment didn't come. It didn't come at that time. It came later. The book of Nahum shows us that. So, hasn't God changed his mind? No, God hasn't changed his mind. God's mind doesn't change because God doesn't change. I, the Lord, do not change. And there's the immutability of his counsel and his purpose will be realised and cannot be thwarted. But the timing can change. Things changed. The hearts of the people of Nineveh changed. And they changed consistently with God's sovereign will through secondary means and secondary activities in which prayer is generally and usually involved. We can look later if we have time, perhaps it will come up in our question and answer, at other examples of this. There are some passages you might read, and you might want to bring up, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 15, where depending on the version of the Bible you're reading, it will state in the text, God changed his mind. But we have to understand what the translators have been translating at that point and what that means. Come back to that, if you like, in our question and answer period. But although we can debate about, about that semantically, I would say that God does not change his mind. And certainly in terms of his decretive will, his mind doesn't change. But God may suspend temporarily his judgment at that moment as was the case of Jonah in his preaching at Nineveh. Moses pleading for God to spare the people of Israel. God said to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people. Moses pleads. He stands in the breach. He intercedes passionately. The leader of God's people identifying with the people, pleading with God. And God's hand is stayed. God doesn't wipe out at that point his people. But none of that generation made it into the promised land. God's purposes don't change. But George Prasher used to say there are manoeuvrabilities within the will of God. Certainly the timing is flexible. And things change when prayer is made. So prayer is effective. Now, we'd have to say actually prayer would be a pointless exercise for us to engage in if we didn't passionately believe in the sovereignty of God. So the sovereignty of God is not a problem for prayer. It's what makes prayer work. We who are weak and helpless and dependent reach out in faithful praying to the sovereign omnipotent God that he might change the circumstances, that he might change us in conformity to his mind and will. And achieve his purpose resolutely through us. 
So sovereignty is important for prayer. If God cannot change his mind, defined in the terms that I've stated it, but that prayer can change things, as we see from the examples in Scripture, Nineveh and Moses and so forth, then prayer does certainly change us. I want to come back to that point that we've talked about earlier. Psalm 37 and 4 is many people's favourite verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But what are those heart's desires? Not our own personal self-gratification. If we've truly fulfilled the leading commission, if we are delighting ourselves in the Lord, then what we desire will ultimately be what he desires through his working by his spirit in us. So if we desire God, then we will come to desire what he desires. And we will express those desires in prayer, and those prayers being in harmony with the will of God will be answered. And so there's this wonderful dynamic that works out in the godly lives that are showcased in Scripture. Desiring God, then we desire what he desires, and then our prayer is effective. It's the, the fruitfulness through abiding in the vine in the picture of John 15 and the effectiveness of prayer that the Lord guarantees for those that are abiding in Christ and abiding in the vine. It's not anybody's prayers who are going to be effective, but if we're abiding in the vine, if we're abiding in Christ, if we're delighting in the Lord, if we're desiring God with all our heart, we will desire what he desires and these things will come to fruition in our lives and our prayer will be an effective instrument which God uses to bring about his purposes through us. But I come back to the point I made earlier that the great golden chain that's there in the scriptures is in Romans chapter 8. You've heard it perhaps described by theologians as the golden chain. Romans 8.30 Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Just a, a flashback to our um, men of the book last year. Um, we were talking about studying the word and just being a little bit cautious at times. Some things have been put forward as rules of thumb and they can't always be followed. When it says... Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's not yet happened. We're not yet glorified. But God's put it in the past tense. Because it's absolutely certain. Nothing can stand between us and that glorification. God's mind doesn't change. Gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In fact, this is the point connecting with last year. That's the aorist tense and some people have stated that the heiress is a past tense. It's a one-off past tense. Well, there's an example of that tense in Scripture. And it's about a future thing that's not yet happened. But God speaks of it in the past tense because it is so certain that it will happen. But that's the great golden chain. If you've got four points on your CV, if those are the four points, it's the greatest CV you can have. Chosen. Called. Justified glorified. 
And that glorification involves our entire sanctification. That is us becoming as like Christ as it is creaturely possible to become. That's the most wonderful thing. And we can't conceive what that will be like. Our thinking, our minds will be totally changed. We'll not struggle with the issues that we have doubts with now. We'll be totally like Christ as far as is possible for us as creatures to be. That's the golden chain. And that's God's purpose, that we should be conformed to the image of his son. That's the great moral purpose that God has in your individual life and in mine. And shouldn't our praying be concentrated around what is God's ultimate objective in us? There are many subsidiary things, ancillary things, that press in on us as temporal needs day to day, and we must bring them to the Lord. And it's right, anything we're anxious about. But here's the thing that we emphasise and we hammer. Now, Bible exposition, and again we talked about this last year, doesn't give us the personal application. We have to work the personal application out. We get normative truth in Scripture. We make it personal as we meditate on Scripture, as we take it to the Lord in prayer, and we get the personal application clear in our hearts and minds. And it usually does involve prayer, as we say. You can think of Paul in Acts chapter 16. He must have been in prayer as a missionary where he was going to go to serve the Lord. And in Acts chapter 16, he was not allowed to go into Asia to preach. That was delayed for three chapters. But in Acts chapter 19, he's in Asia preaching, and the whole of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God's sovereign purpose is being worked out, but changes in timing. Not in the timing of Acts 16, but in the timing of Acts 19. And Paul, through prayer, was clarifying the timing associated with God's purposes. So we have prayer in that connection. Now, moving on, just to conclude... I want to sum up and say that perhaps we can think of prayer in the way that we've been framing it in these terms. Prayer gets us into the proper frame of mind. I'm borrowing that from 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 11 in the NIV. Uh, Paul has talked about some things in connection with the Thessalonians and he says, with this in mind, and then he utters his prayer. So, you don't come to prayer with a blank sheet of paper, with an empty mind. Paul set out ten verses in that chapter, and then he says, and with this in mind, I pray for those in the Church of God in Thessalonica. And so this is the, the frame of mind, I suggest, that we can have. Prayer is about standing in awe, perhaps clarifying, but standing in awe of God's decrees. It's about cultivating a grace-based obedience to do his precepts, confessing our shortcomings in that regard. Prayer gets us in tune with what is pleasing to the Lord, that we might walk worthily of him and his calling. We can also ask clarity and wisdom about what he permits, and we can become informed about his personal direction in our lives. So you can see the first three points take us through the decretive, preceptive wills of God, and then the third point, the will of disposition, and then the others deal with the 
the areas of permission that we talked about and the personalising of the exercise of these precepts. For example, we made the example of evangelising. Go into all the world. That's a precept. I'll either obey it or I'll disobey it. But it is vital to pray, Lord, to whom shall I go? I've got to go to someone. It would be disobedient not to, but to whom shall I go? Is it your will that I go to the far ends of the earth? Or is it your will that I walk across the room and talk to my colleague at work or my classmate at school? Equally valid ways of fulfilling the Great Commission. So prayer to clarify wisely the scope of God's precepts for our personal lives and the personal application of God's work and be getting that direction in our lives. Then I want to say that prayer is the means God has decreed to his promised blessing. Prayer is the means decreed to God's promised blessing. So, concluding then, because our time is coming to an end, let's look at what Paul prayed for. We've spoken about thinking about our prayer life, our church prayer life. Does it match up to this? This is the scriptural analysis of Paul's prayer life in the inspired word of scripture. Paul prayed for more faith, for more love, for more maturity and understanding. More faith and love, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look up verse 3. Praying for more maturity and understanding, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul's praying for his Christian friends in all these regards. Colossians 2.2, more understanding for them in the mystery of Christ. He's praying that they'll be counted worthy. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5, or Ephesians 4 verse 1, or Colossians 1 verse 10. Counted worthy that they'll be more fruitful, bearing fruit in every good work. Colossians 1.10. Pray they'll be more unified, more united. Philippians 1 verse 27. That with one soul and one spirit you'll strive for the gospel. He prays for his fellow believers they'll be more enlightened, more empowered. Ephesians 1 about enlightenment. And also in Ephesians chapter 1, that prayer about empowerment of God's saints in the church of God in Ephesus. And then Paul prays for people that they might have protection from evil surrounding them as they do the will of God. He prays this in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 2. He says... Preserve us from evil men, for all don't have faith. So prayer for protection while doing God's will. He prays for boldness and clarity. Ephesians 6.20. Boldness and clarity in speaking the message of God to his people. Faithfulness in preaching and ministry. That comes in in um, Colossians 4 and verse 17. Prayed that Archippus would take heed to his ministry and would fulfill his ministry. These are the things that Paul prays about. He prays for salvation among his compatriots. Romans 10 and 1. His burning desire in his heart was that 
his fellow Jews would be saved. He also prays for the elect to obtain that glory that he knew in Christ. Asks for prayer for those in high office. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. That they would have godly living conditions. The believers would have godly living conditions. And he prays for likeness to Christ. Galatians 4 and 19. So look at that list. Is that what my prayer diary is like? Is that what our church prayer meetings reflect? Principally those concerns. Not wrong to pray for other things. They're all legitimate. They're all encompassed by bringing our anxieties to the Lord. But here is the spiritual purpose for prayer. Time is gone and I want to leave it there. Thank you very much for your attention.